Happy holidays, Hokie fans. We're excited to be back with you for the latest episode of Teradome Talk. We're located here in this holiday wonderland that is our podcast set. I'm here with Austin Eads. I'm Jonathan Hagee. We're glad to be back with you. How's it going, Austin? Jonathan, it's a blessed time to be a Hokie. The winter season is upon us. Christmas is right around the corner. And I tell you what, the stars at night are big and bright deep in the heart of Texas. We're really looking at some exciting recruits coming in, man. The Texas to Virginia Tech movement is basically on fire right now. We've got a couple guys that are, are signed up and in the boat, and we've got a couple of other guys who are really heavily considering coming to Blacksburg and making it home. That, and we're, we're looking at a belt bowl matchup on New Year's Eve with Kentucky that uh, should be rather interesting. It's an SEC opponent. Man, it's just a good time to be a Hokie. It, it certainly is. And, um, you know, you alluded to the early signing day period that uh, concluded yesterday <clears throat> on the 18th. And uh, Virginia Tech really came through with two huge commitments at a position of need at defensive end with uh, Robert Wooten from Stafford, Texas, a high three-star, six-foot-three, 230-pound defensive end, and four-star Alec Bryant, who uh, uh, is actually the 14th-ranked defensive end in the country um, from Shadow Creek, Pearland, Texas there, 6'3", 240 pounds, a former LSU commit. Uh, Wooten was a one-time Missouri commit under Barry Odom. So really two huge pickups at, like we said, a position of need where Virginia Tech is in desperate need of pass rushers and depth there on the defensive line. And I think these two guys really bring that to the table going forward. Absolutely, man. Bryant is one of those guys that is just an animal, and you can tell by the offers list just looking at it. We're talking about LSU, USC, Oklahoma, I mean, Miami, Michigan State, some really high-profile programs throughout the country, even as far as Oregon, uh, teams like TCU and other defensive powerhouse down in the Big 12, if ever there was a, a powerhouse of defense in the Big 12. <laughs> but anyways, no, this kid looks to be a real animal, and i tell you what, he's attracting some attention from other recruits in that area as well. I know uh, Dwight McLaughlin, uh, the cornerback that is, is from around the Houston area, is, is high on Virginia Tech because of Wooten and Bryant coming in, and it just looks like there are a lot of opportunities for old Bo to just keep knowing things, man, and getting it done down in Texas. Right, and then and then you look outside of Texas over the weekend, you know, a lot of huge official visits uh, for Virginia Tech football. They were able to secure the commitment of Justin Beatles, another defensive end uh, with great size, and he's got that length that really we've kind of lacked at that position for the past few years, Six five and a half, two 232 pounds. And then you look on the offensive line at a Caden Moore the former Bowling Green commit. I know people are going to look at that and hear that and say, oh, Bowling Green, you know, that's not that's not a, a big deal. But Moore is 6'3", 305. And sometimes those offensive linemen kind of get lost in the shuffle and recruiting, and you can find a diamond in the rough. And the good news about Caden Moore is he's not going to need to play immediately. Our offensive line is very young and very talented, so he's a guy that they can kind of red shirt, let him develop and bring him along, and he'll be in that mold of the, of the guys that Virginia Tech has had success with, I believe, that uh, of kind of an under the radar guy that develops to be to be a really good player. Yeah, and it's one of those things. Caden uh, is a guy that we could take a, a chance on and kind of turn into a project player because of some attrition that happened with a guy like Joe Kane, who committed to Elon. And congratulations to him going somewhere he might be able to get some playing time. It's just kind of tough sledding right now in the Virginia Tech offensive line room. But more is somebody that could really, really flourish and become a good player in a couple of years. Like you said, he doesn't have to come in and be somebody that is productive immediately. I'm personally excited, and I know Fuente is very excited about a tight end prospect we're bringing in, a Frenchman. His name is Wilfred or 
Wilfried Penay. He's from St. Thomas More Prep in uh, Connecticut. Excuse me. And he is 6'3", 235, and is incredibly athletic. He's like the he's top 10 in the state uh, where he plays uh, football in wrestling as well. So leverage and, and power are things that he's going to be very familiar with conceptually. So he's, he's going to be ahead of the curve athletically for a lot of those guys. And like, other guys that we uh, haven't talked about as much recently because they've kind of been in the boat for a while. You got Tyree Saunders from down in Jacksonville, six foot, 174 pounds is kind of a blazer uh, likened to uh, Tavian Robinson, somebody that could be that type of slot playmaker for us. He's a big time guy. Uh, and then Darrell Bailey Jr., who's 6'6", 255. And anytime you're bringing in a big-time athlete that's 6'6", 250-plus from down in Greenback, Texas, you're looking at somebody that could really be a potential freak in that room. Right, and, and Bailey, and that's a guy I've mentioned a couple of times. He's somebody that I'm really excited about. And I've seen him uh, seen him mentioned um, as kind of a guy that maybe could play offense on the offensive line. And I'm really hoping that he sticks on the defensive line and they, they look to put some weight on him and, and play him at defensive tackle. He's kind of in that mold of a Pollard and a Kendricks. Uh, you know, height-wise, he, he's fine, but weight-wise, he, he probably needs to add some some weight. But I, I think that quickness and his initial burst and, and the way he moves laterally would really play well on the defensive line. Oh, yeah. I, he seems a little too athletic, if you ask me, to just be put at tackle. Um, I know that we've had success doing that in the past. Guys like Wyatt Teller moved to guard and was very successful from a defensive line to offensive line. Uh, then uh, Joshua Nijman, Nijman, uh came in and was the same way. He was a defensive end and moved over to tackle and had, had some success. But I'd like to see Bailey get a crack at defensive end with the way things are going. Right, and, and Nijman is the comparison that I'm seeing the most, a, a guy that the coaches project could – potentially play offensive tackle at 6'6", but he's at 255, so he would really have to, you know, gain around 35 pounds, 290, to be to be a serious threat there to, to play offensive tackle. To even be in that room, he'd have to put on probably 40 pounds comfortably at tackle. I mean, because you're going to be going up against guys who are brute athletes on the edge out there as far as linebackers and edge rushers, especially against better teams as we continue to improve competition. Uh, other guys to be excited about, man, like Lakeen Rudolph. I know he plays receiver in high school. He's 6'4", 202. We're looking at him as probably a safety. And I tell you what, anytime you get a safety that's 6'4", 202 and can run as a wide receiver, you have to be pretty excited. Absolutely a long athletic guy. Um, I, I've seen some Cam Chancellor comparisons there. Uh, another guy I'm excited about is Parker, Parker Clements, another offensive tackle. The guy who was on Clemson uh, radar for a while. Absolutely. And, you know, at 6'7", 270, he's going to be on everybody's radar. Um, I think he kind of fits in the mold of a Luke Tenuta, a guy that's bigger, under-recruited, but has a lot has a lot of upside, a high ceiling. And at 6'7", 270, you can do a lot with that frame. 6'7", is conducive to being 305, 310, 320. Uh, and still being able to move well. And, again, none of our offensive line prospects are going to have to play immediately, so that bodes well for the development. And Vance Vice and that coaching staff, along with Hilgert in the weight room, have shown that they can develop guys and bring them along and re really coach them up early. Absolutely. It's an exciting prospect anytime Vice gets a hold of some young guys. And it seems like he has a nose for young talent. Uh, you look at, like, T.J. Nestor and, uh, and Brian Hudson and – Jesse Hansen, that guys that have really come in and, and been productive early on, and like Nestor especially, and, and Hudson too, uh, in the, on the inside there. Uh, so you really have to be comfortable with what Vice is doing in the offensive line room with young talent. I'm excited personally about Marco Lee, man. Like, uh, at 5'11", 225, a running back out of Coffeeville Community College, kind of a, a transfer guy. He looks like he could really bring in a lot of power 
at, at that position. The running back room has, has got a lot of flash in it right now, but there's nobody that we've seen thus far that has shown a real glimpse of the strong power running that we're, we're kind of accustomed to. And we would need some thunder to the lightning that we've got. Right. And one guy that uh, Hokie Nation should be terribly excited about is Khalil Herbert. Um, the grad transfer from Kansas announced that he was going to play his his grad transfer year at Virginia Tech. Um, uh, Herbert really is a weapon. Uh, I think the Boston College game this year for Kansas, he rushed for more yards than I, I think we had in the first game against Boston College on offense. Absolutely, he did. Um, you know, he, he limited to 43 carries this year, 384 yards, two touchdowns. I think he and Les Miles just more or less, you know, agreed to part ways mutually and on, on good terms. I think Herbert wanted to redshirt. And there was some miscommunication there. And once he voiced, you know, his desire to redshirt and come back next year and play at Kansas, being a new coach, uh, you know, that happens in programs. I think Les Miles decided he'd rather have the scholarship and, and and kind of forced Herbert's hand to go play elsewhere. And, you know, lucky for us, we're there and we're able to secure the commitment. But uh, in his sophomore season, he did have 120 carries for 663 yards. He's an explosive guy that can be moved around the field in a lot of, you know, the slot out of the backfield. He can do a lot of different things, be utilizing the screen game. He's somebody that I expect to step in and take carries. Absolutely. You know, it's it's exciting. We've signed in all these running backs, man. We've got some depth there that we haven't had for a while. Like, you know, Jalen Hampton, Jalen Brunson, or Jordan Brunson, I'm sorry. Both, both guys that have been in the boat for a little bit and – Really, I would expect to to do well in this system. Brunson, especially, man, is six foot two ten from down in uh, Alpharetta, Georgia. Plays at Denmark High School down there. He's, he's they play good football in Georgia. They're one of the better states. I'd say top ten high school football states in the country. The kid can get it done. He, he's just a physical specimen at two hundred and ten pounds. Right. Uh, another prospect that I know the coaching staff is really excited about, and I think if you turn on the film and look. Any, any Hokie fan would be is Tyree Saunders, the receiver from Jacksonville, Florida, six foot, one hundred seventy-four pounds. And the thing you have to like about him is not only does he does he bring a lot of talent and explosiveness to the table, but he's been one of our most vocal recruiters, you know, on you know, on social media and on visits, trying to recruit other guys to come to Virginia Tech with him. And he's certainly in a state that we want to keep as a pipeline in Florida. And you know, we've had a lot of success there in the Jacksonville area. Uh, with, with a lot of guys. So Tyree Saunders, again, another prospect that doesn't have to come in and play immediately because the talent in the receiver room is so deep. And I, I think he's a guy that could play early if, it, if we needed him to, but, you know, fortunately we don't. So I think you'll see him take a redshirt year, continue to develop, and, and, and really be a, a, a big-time player for us down the road. It's an exciting time anytime early signing day hits. But, you know, this class especially, I mean, we've caught – Tech has caught a lot of flack for – the size of the class and the quality of the class, but you really have to be careful with evaluations when you're only taking like 15 guys. Sure. I mean, that when you're, there are limited scholarships available, you have to be very picky about who gets to come and who doesn't. Uh, so really I would look for these evaluations to have been really, really just picked apart and ridiculed and very like made very concisely because these are important players because this is such a small class going forward. Right. And, I think, you know, and people aren't going to like this, and they're going to point to recruiting rankings and things, and certainly we all get caught up in that, and they are important. If they didn't matter, they wouldn't have them. And, you know, the Clemsons and the Alabamas of the world continually have the top recruits, and they continually have the best teams. So, obviously, there's correlation. 
But I think back to, uh, you know, Coach Fuente's introductory press conference. Well, um, I, I don't know if a lot of people remember this, but he he spoke about that they were going to rely on their evaluations and they were going to recruit good football players and who they thought fit their system, not who others told them to recruit. And I think a story here in this class that fits that description is Dorian Strong, a cornerback from Upper Marlboro, Maryland, six foot, 160 pounds, three star, unranked nationally, 156 ranked corner and uh, or 156 ranked player at his position is a guy that, you know, kind of under-recruited, but I know our coaching staff had him very high on the board at cornerback, and they're very excited about him, even so much so that the rumor is they turned down a commitment from Miles Brooks, who's another Florida kid that ultimately ended up at Georgia Tech, four-star corner. So that's a case where the coaching staff is depending on their evaluate or depending on their evaluation of strong over Brooks versus just simply a recruiting ranking and how many stars a guy has. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about that cornerback and it kind of makes me want to talk more about coaching hires and things of that nature and how that's impacted uh, recruiting. I feel like Justin Hamilton, the new defensive coordinator, has done an excellent job with the staff that they've put in place. He and Coach Wente have kind of moved some guys around, brought in some new guys to really rouse up some interest and, and kind of get guys looking at Virginia Tech even more so. And it's very exciting. You know, we got Tracy Clays coming in as a, an assistant coach, former defensive coordinator, coached with Coach Kill uh, at Minnesota and did very well there. He's a, a very good coach, not as great of a recruiter. Then you've got a hokey favorite, Daryl Tapp, coming in as a defensive line assistant. And I'll tell you what, that's that's going to be a lot of fun to watch because Daryl Tapp is one of the best defensive linemen to ever step foot inside a lane stadium uh, wearing that maroon and orange, man. So we've got some really interesting hires coming in, not just recruits. Right, and you look at Tracy Clay's, you know, I, th- I think – and we're going to get to the Justin Hamilton hire in, in depth here in a minute and, and discuss that. But you look at Clay's, and, yeah, maybe his recruiting prowess isn't, you know, top top tier, top of college football, but there's value in him. And, one, he's a good football coach. And you look at his experience as a head coach following Jerry Kill at Minnesota and being the defensive coordinator and then following – Mike or being with Mike Leach at – Washington State as a defensive coordinator. There's a guy that's really good at coaching up under-recruited guys. He, he's really good at player development, and he also has experience, and he's a, a an ear that Justin Hamilton has there in the room that's been through the trenches, you know, of being a defensive coordinator, a head coach. So it's experience. So I think they've done a really good job in what they've brought in so far of mixing dynamic personalities that are a name that can, can bring in recruits and recruit and coach, but – mixing that with guys that are proven player development guys. Absolutely. You know, I, and I like the staff that we have in place uh, because we still have guys like Bo and then like Pearson Prelu in, in standing. And I know he's out on the recruiting trail right now as an on-the-field coach, even though he'll probably step back into his role as more of a quality control guy uh, after all uh, the dust is settled and everything. But I really like a lot of the guys we have in, in place, uh, the new running backs coach even as well. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun to see how that plays out because I don't feel like Jerry Kill and Justin Fuente would be putting these guys in these positions if they didn't think it was a good idea. Right, and one name that I've heard connected to the defensive line hire is a name that should have everybody terribly excited is Bill uh, Tierlink. Um, the defensive or the defensive line coach for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, there's a connection there with Fuente, I believe, um, at Eastern Illinois when they when they were there coaching. Uh, and he is the son of longtime NFL defensive line coach John Tierlink. Um, and there's actually an award named after him 
that goes to, you know, to an assistant coach in the NFL. So people are really excited about that name that's floating out there. Of course, nothing's set in stone. We don't know for sure. I've just seen that name kind of connected and there is a connection there. Um, so that would be big time NFL experience. Now, I don't know if he would leave the Buffalo Bills to come to Virginia Tech or what, you know, how he, how he views professional versus college coaching, what his career aspirations are. But that would certainly be a home run hire to pair him with Daryl Tapp on that D-line. Absolutely. You know, and another potential hire that I've heard about, it's in another position. But just as exciting, if you ask me, based on performance ratings and things of that nature, uh, potential cornerbacks coach, because Prelude was talking about staying in his position. Uh, one of the names that I've heard a lot about is uh, JMU's Matt Burkett. Um, and, you know, I, I know it's JMU. I know they're FCS, but I mean, they're on the cusp of becoming a D1 college football program. And Burkett has had that defense humming on, on the back end of things. I mean, right now we're talking about their, their what, seventh, I think, in the country in passes intercepted. Uh, second in the country in third down conversion as far as defensive percentage, third in scoring defense, and their passing defense is a huge a part of that. And, you know, and it goes back even further than that. He came from Maine University, and at Maine, I think they were sixth in the country under him in FCS with 18 interceptions in one season. So, you know, they, they do really well under Burkett, and he's got a very, very good background as far as what he puts on the field statistically. Uh, I know he played at uh, – I think he played at Rhode Island. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, Rhode Island, and I think he played at Edinburgh. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, I saw uh, that earlier today. So he, uh, so, I mean, he didn't play at a big school, but he's somebody that obviously understands the game well because JMU has been in national title contention for the last three or four years in FCS. They've become a bit of a powerhouse as far as that level of football is concerned. So that would be an exciting hire, at least from a statistic standpoint, because, you know, we want to keep that hashtag DBU moniker going. We don't want to be – uh, eradicated just because Bud Foster's not going to be there. Absolutely. And I, I misspoke. Um, it, it was Illinois State that Fuente and uh, Terralink worked together. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I've seen some of the comments out there and some of the opinions that just because, you know, that guy, you know, he's a coach at JMU, that, you know, that automatically disqualifies him because he doesn't have even group of five experience, much less power five experience. But they're, you know, football coaches are football coaches. What you know is what you know. Scheme is scheme and all of that, um, you're, you're just maybe coaching a little bit better players. But if anything, I, I feel like that would benefit you because if you're having success with, you know, lesser talented got position players, if you get more talent, I think you're going to you're gonna do just as well with that because the competition level is even at both. You know, yeah, you're, you're going to have – you're be coaching better players, playing against better players, but you've been coaching players of the same caliber against players of the same caliber already. So I don't really think there's much of a transition there, to be honest. You know, it's hard to say. And I know like there should, there might be some in-state courtesy for some of those coaches as far as the guys I'm referencing at JMU because I know that Tech has probably also talked to Ryan Smith, the safeties coach at Virginia or at JMU. But he was a graduate assistant at Penn State, and he played at William & Mary. Sure. A guy with a lot of good experience. But there's a lot of potential in those names. And I know some people are pipe-dreaming and saying, oh, we want Anthony Mitchell. Like, Anthony Mitchell's not coming back from Houston to, to coach DB's. In Blacksburg, I, I just don't see that. I, it would be a pay cut, right? And that, and that doesn't mean that Anthony Midget doesn't love his alma mater no, where he plays. Just, he's in the not, NFL. He's a, you know, it doesn't make sense logistically, right? It it, it would be you know, it, it's not quite as extreme, but it would be you know uh, the same as 
Bruce Arians, uh, you know, nobody expects him to come back from being the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and coach at Virginia Tech. So please let's not start let's not start the narrative that just because some of these former players that have been successful aren't coming back to join the staff at their first opportunity means that somehow there's a disconnect between the former players and the program. Absolutely. You know, you, you can't think that there's some sort of issue with those guys and, and Blacksburg because I mean, really, you make it to the NFL, that's the pinnacle of that profession. I mean, come on, dude. And, and you don't have to recruit. I don't think people realize what a grind recruiting is and what a relief that is at the NFL level. You're you're just coaching what they give you. Um, you know, you're part of the evaluation process, but there's front office personnel and the head coach that are determining who, who you're taking in the draft. The NFL is a billion-dollar industry, let's be honest. It, it, college football and the NFL are two completely different animals as far as prep and and things of that nature in what you're bringing in talent-wise. The closest you get to recruiting is when you're looking at the guys for the draft, honestly. And, and, and even that's not even that comparable, to be honest. Right, and especially as a position coach. You know, you're not really making crucial you're decisions. You're not doing in-home in visits. You're not spending – uh, six days a week on the road. I mean, it's, it's not like it's a grind, but it's a different grind. And, and we don't know what Anthony Midget's you know career aspirations are. He he may be looking to be a defensive coordinator in the NFL, and hopefully one day parlay that into being a head coach. So you know he's certainly not going to do that from moving to defensive backs coach at Virginia Tech. But with all that being said, you know I really do like the direction that the staff is headed. Um, you know we touched on this in the last podcast, um, but. On the D-line, you know, we everybody hated to see Coach Wiles, you know, go, um, whatever the circumstances were. We talked about that. He, he's been really good for a long time on the recruiting trail, uh, coaching his guys up. He's been just as much a part of the success that Hokies football has had as anybody. He, he's right there, with, you know, with Bud Foster and Frank Beamers. They're kind of right-hand guys. Um, so we wish him the best, certainly, and, and hope that he lands on his feet. We know he will. I mean, Charlie's highly regarded as one of the one of the best D line coaches in the country. People can, you know, say say what they want to hear recently about the recruiting on the D line. That's not all on him because you know you're you're responsible for an area, not just a position as as a college coach. So he he's recruiting an area, a region of the country, not just D line. Certainly, he has you know his hand in that, but. Charlie's one of the best, and anybody that was saying anything but positive things about Charlie Wiles is totally off base and misguided. You know, I hate to see Charlie Wiles go, but I'm, I'm very, very proud of him at being able to say that he was a Hokie for as long as he was. He was just as much an integral part of all of this as Bud Foster was in a lot of ways, and I think Bud would tell you the same. He, he did in his statement. You know, in the the interview, the Belt Bowl press conference, he said he was disappointed that Charlie wasn't going to be able to stay, but he certainly understood. And, you know, that Charlie had been just as big a part of what um, had, had taken place within that program as anybody. And that he just hated that Charlie kind of like what we talked about, that he didn't get the fanfare on his way out that he deserved. You know, and I, I felt that personally because I was very much singing Charlie Wilde's praises all year. Cause what he did with those young defensive tackles this year, and that's not to say that they weren't incredibly underrated coming into Virginia tech, but what he was able to get out of those guys, man, made all the difference in the world on what the defense has been able to do this year. And it just speaks to the the volume of what Charlie's body of work really was in Blacksburg. And if you want to see just what he means to the program outside of what Coach Foster and even Coach Fuente said about Co Coach Wiles, I know that Coach Fuente has a tremendous amount of respect for, for Coach Wiles, but you look at 
the former players, the outpouring they had, the tweets, not just that he had made them a better football player, but that he had made them better men. And that, that's really what you want at the college level. I know that, you know, we all want to win. We all want to win the national title, ACC championships, absolutely. But at the end of the day, are you are you creating productive people to go out in life and do things other than football? And Charlie Wiles, 100%, is a Hall of Famer in that, in that regard. Oh, yeah. He's somebody that, that I look forward to spending a lot of time with maybe when we get up there to, to heaven to talk to God a little bit about football. But Charlie Wiles is a great man. It goes without saying. And I tell you, he's been a heck of a football coach for a long time, and he impacted a lot of lives outside of his position group. I tell you what, nobody recruited the state of Florida any better and found diamonds in the rough any better than Charlie Wiles did, man. Guys like Luther Maddy and Daddy Nicholas – that he found down there and brought up here and just turned into straight up dogs. And, and even I, I saw Isaiah Ford, you know, Isaiah shouted him Ford, out. Well, yeah, Isaiah Ford and like Brandon Flowers, guys like that that right. are from the Florida area and were phenomenal football players. And and I think that he he utilized his brother as a resource there, who's a high school football coach in in the state of Florida. Um, so Charlie and and on top of his football prowess, if you've ever met Charlie, one of the absolute funniest human beings that you've ever come into contact with if some, for some reason he decides he wants to retire from coaching if he were to start a stage show and just tell stories people would buy tickets he, he would sell out i'd be front row i absolutely and i've heard most of them because i've had quite quite a few interactions with coach wiles great man great family hilarious great football coach we wish him the best so now you know to, to move to justin hamilton the guy directing all i won't say all these moves because you know i'm we're sure coach fuente we know that coach fuente has say, in, in his staff. But the guy here at the top of the defense now replacing a legendary defensive coordinator, Bud Foster, Justin Hamilton. You know, Austin, we haven't really talked about this. This is our first podcast since the hire was announced. Uh, you know, what are your feelings? You know, honestly, Jonathan, and I feel comfortable saying this now, I didn't four months ago. You and I talked about it. Uh, we have an undisclosed source, and we'll keep keep the person – Anonymous, so as not to make anybody sure. We don't. We don't want to out him. Yeah. We're like, nah, but this person is very much trustworthy, and I didn't believe it when this was said to us so many months ago at a, at a local gym here. Um, but this this hire has been in the works for months and months and months. I mean, this was this predates football season. I think even like was the minute they found out Bud was retiring, as soon as he made that decision, I feel like Justin Hamilton was being groomed and was being given first crack at this position the whole time. I think it may have made the decision easier for Coach Foster that, okay, I got this young dynamic guy that knows the game. I can mentor him along for, for a year, and then we're going to turn it over to him. And like you said, we haven't discussed Justin Hamilton as an option, and we did not in the last show because Barry Odom was let go at Missouri. And we were hearing some things from inside of Merriman that – you know, maybe the tide was turning on that higher, and that would be the one thing that would throw a wrench into just Justin Hamilton automatically being hired there. But we, like you said, we've said on this probably since August, somebody very reliable that if somebody was going to know not named Justin Fuente or Bud Foster, that this person would know. So we have said on this for a few months, and anybody that knows us, you know, in our circle knows we have told them this, and we're not trying to sit here after the fact and say, oh, you know, we knew more than you or we knew more than anybody else. We're just saying this is something we've known and and kind of had the scoop on, um, but haven't you – know, certainly we would not come out with this until it was made official. No, this is one of those things where, honestly, we could have scooped the world on it. But at the end of the day, it's just not worth it to, to do all of that. And 
and out somebody. Sure, sure. We don't want to do any because I, it wasn't one of those conversations where hey, you could use this as a as a full on source. And not only that, we don't pretend to be insiders. We're not people who I have no desire to be an insider in that perspective. Because even if I even if we were, and I know you feel the same way, we are not going to run on here and tell what we know from inside the program because those people are telling us those things in confidence. Exactly. And, and as athletically you know, inclined people and people who have been around athletics our whole life, we wouldn't want that done to us in, in that situation. Uh, there's some things just aren't worth scooping and we're not reporters. We don't make money off of, off of clicks and views and stuff like that. We love it when people listen to our podcast because we love doing this. This is a passion. For us. Right. But 100% this hire has been in the works and Bud Foster has been pushing for this from the very beginning of the retirement stage. And, you know, hearing more and more about how he's going to be around for prep and advice on recruiting and different personnel decisions and things like that makes me feel a lot better about it because I don't think Justin Hamilton is quite ready to just be alone on his own as a defensive coordinator. But I do think the potential is sky. Absolutely. And I think one thing that's being missed in this is, you know, some people are starting to I won't say complain, but become concerned if you if you if you're reading the wrong places, as I'd like to say. They they're starting to become concerned about the lack of power five experience on our defensive staff as, as it sits right now. Um, I, that's why we talked about Coach Clay's. I think that was a good hire in that spot. Um, but you look at you know Coach Hamilton has Coach Foster there, who will be right there at an arm's length if he needs him, and and will be more than willing. Has said he'd be more than willing to help him. Uh, you have Daryl Tapp who his role is not really defined. They haven't said if he's going to be assistant defensive line coach or just like kind of like a roving defensive coach in general. But he's a guy that certainly played in the LPD, gone through that, knows the expectation and the standard, along with Pearson, who's there in a player development role that knows that. And then Clay's an experienced head coach and defensive coordinator. So even though the staff may lack power five experience at their position, they don't lack hokey experience. And that's important because our program is very much built on the hokey way, the you know the blue collar lunch pill way. And, and there's guys in the defensive on the defensive staff surrounding Justin Hamilton that know that way. You know, and Justin Hamilton has been somebody that played a bunch of different positions. He played safety. I think he played some slot corner. He played some linebacker for. Played ball. receiver and running back too. He's I mean, he's on both sides of the ball. He's yeah, played everywhere. Virginia Tech and Daryl Tapp is somebody who did a lot of time at Virginia Tech, played in the NFL and was very productive in the NFL. Sure. Was a kind of a journeyman, but he did he played, they played a lot twelve of snaps. NFL seasons. Yeah, he played a lot of snaps between Detroit and New Orleans. He's got a lot of NFL experience, and then Clay's has that defensive coordinator experience at the Power Five level. It's the Big Ten and at Minnesota, but they were pretty productive and very skilled. Yeah, I think time. he had an eight and five season. I mean, yeah. at Minnesota, I mean, you see what PJ Fleck is doing there now, but that that's an up year. PJ Fleck would probably be fortunate to average eight and five, you know, in, in normal years. Minnesota's not an easy job in that conference. It's, no, it's a, that's a tough state to sell, man. Six months out of the year, it's bitter cold. Right, it's cold Minnesota. when it's supposed to be warm. I right? mean, you know, it's, it, like, it's cold. They, like, it's cold there. We're talking like below zero with. Like you better cover your face up or it's going to fall off cold. Right. The last really good football player that I can remember them having was Marion Barber the third that played running back. Uh, I think there was another running back on that same team with him. They were both 1,000-yard rushers. But, you know, Marion Barber was pretty Marion solid. Marion Barbarian, man. He was a heck of a running back. With, with the Cowboys. The yeah, a- absolutely. So it's not a program littered with a lot of NFL pro talent. So Aiden Fives a pretty – and he would still be the coach the other day had he – and we're not getting into this because obviously we don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of the, the situation and give our opinion. But, you know, had he not butted heads with the administration, 
he'd still be the head coach at Minnesota today and very much a Jerry Kill guy. But it's not a hire of Jerry Kill just taking care of one of his guys. This is a legitimate football coach with legitimate experience that offers legitimate value to the program. Without a doubt. And, you know, I like the direction that we're moving with the guys. It's, it's a well-rounded staff. And I think the corner coach's hire is going to continue to round that out well. And, you know, I think the money we're saving in some of these positions is going to be put forth to recruiting assistants. And that's huge at this day and age. If we can get more guys on the on the road and online and doing all kinds of stuff for recruiting, man, that's how you move forward. The only thing as important as recruiting is money at this point as far as being able to show off what you've got to those recruits. So that's something we have to look at. Right. Somebody better find some money to, to keep Bo Davidson around for, no uh, for some years. because you don't I mean, know Bo. <laughs> he is doing some things that have not been done on the recruiting trail at Virginia Tech in states you know that they've, they've never done – that what he's doing there. I mean, and Texas, I mean, who who would have thought that Virginia Tech would be pulling all these recruits from Texas in the 20, 2020 and 2021 classes? No kidding. We're talking about two or three different ESPN top 300 guys that are interested and, and committed, some committed even. I mean, there's every day on Twitter, there's a guy from Texas tweeting out using the hashtag Texas to Virginia Tech moniker. I don't even think Virginia Tech has offered that, that kid. Like, I don't think they have an offer. I think the interest is is one way on their part right now. Some legitimate attention, man. We got a hold on to Bo, and I think it was a very good move by Fuente, allowing him to be an on the field coach so he can recruit in person during this cycle until they move him back to his off field position, at least for the bowl game. Man, I, him being able to get in touch with those kids face to face has been huge. And, and my question is, with his, I know he's great in his recruiting role, uh, you know, as as an administrator. But do they try to find some way to fit him as the 10th coach? Uh, at, at this point, you have to consider it because you've got to do something to keep him around. Because Bo, right now, may be the best recruiter on staff. Right. And that's just being honest. He's doing the most as far as big-name guys. He's kind of getting a movement going in a state where Virginia Tech has not historically recruited Anybody, I can't, I can't. Gerard Evans was from Texas as a transfer, grad transfer out of JUCO. You know, he played at Air Force. Counts as much, but I'm telling you, man, this is a movement that has gained a lot of momentum. And yeah, maybe some of these kids are using it for internet cloud. It's one of those things that you expect in this day and age. But some of these guys are really serious about this. But I mean, you look at at LSU right now as as at the pinnacle of college football. I mean, number one ranked team in the country, SEC champion. Alec Bryant was verbally committed to LSU, and he didn't decommit because they kicked him out of the class because, you know, Ed Orgeron is a defensive line guy, and they liked Bryant. Bryant freely committed, decommitted on his own. We don't know the reasons. Virginia Tech wasn't even on the radar when he decommitted, and we're able to go in and, and get him. I mean, that that's a huge just all around on so many levels. That's, that's you, a big pickup. You can't sleep on a guy like Robert Wooten either, man. Also, and he's been a great advocate for bringing in guys, it seems like. Him and Demetrius Davis both, man seem to be all over the place trying to pull guys in. I, I feel like Demetrius Davis could be, you know, the next Tyrod. Uh, if you saw on Twitter, you were talking about the guys from Texas trying to use the maybe the Texas or Virginia Tech hashtag for internet clout. Davis got on there and called him out. He was like, hey, if you're a prospect and you're not serious about joining this movement, stop tweeting that out for likes and followers because that's not what this is about. And if you look two years ago to the North Carolina to VT hashtag the success we had with that with you know Trey Turner and Dax and some really good players there if we have the same success in Texas that we had with that movement 
Uh, I mean, it's going to be a really good a really good time for Virginia Tech football going forward because those dudes can play. You know, we've talked about it. Yeah, Texas is probably the best high school football in the country. Let's be honest. And we've talked about it, man. The 757, some of those guys are going to see some big-name talent coming to Virginia Tech, and they might just think about, like, hey, what what's possible if I show up to? Right. And, you know, I'm kind of – I'm kind of getting tired of the narrative from, from that. You know, all I hear, I read things, and I'm hearing that, you know, this guy in the 757 is going to big-time the program. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I, I know what it means, but you're you're claiming that you're that you're bigger than the program, but you're going to programs that aren't as big. You know, why do, they, why do we continue to see an exodus from the 757 to Maryland? What is Maryland? What is College Park? What is that program? What does them being a bottom feeder in the Big Ten offer them that being one of the best teams in the ACC does not. In your home state, where some of the best players that ever come out of your state have played, I can make the argument that two of the greatest college football players of all time on either side of the ball played at Virginia Tech and Bruce Smith and Michael Vick. Two transcendent players at the collegiate sure. level. Top 20, so what top are you, 25, top 50 all-time. What are you leaving the state to accomplish? Because if you stay in state and you can get your buddies to stay in state with you, you're going to win a national title eventually if you continue to bring that talent in. Can, so You know, the only thing I can think of the Maryland offers is maybe getting beat by 100 by Ohio State for regular season. I mean, I just don't understand. You know, if, if – It makes no sense. If, you know, Urban Meyer took over Maryland's program – uh, you know, James Franklin was the head coach when she was the head coach and waiting there at one point under Ralph Friedgen. I, you know, I can understand something like that, but what I, I don't, you can't claim your big time in your home state program if you're not going to a big time program. It just makes no sense to me. I mean, some kids, I, I mean, I would rather, it would make more sense if they were going to UVA than, than Maryland. I, they're, I, yeah, the education's better. Uh, I you know I don't. I would know. rather play. I mean, I, under Bronco Minute. I mean, as much as we don't like it, I mean, he's got them headed in the right direction. At least there's some kind of positive traction you can see. It doesn't make much sense to go to Maryland. I agree. Uh, it's one of those things. The seven five seven and Justin Puente have kind of had some abrasive times. It hasn't been the smoothest of relationships. Uh, and you know, losing Zion Burden, even though he really made a snafu out of the Brandon Campbell situation. May hurt in the immediate with the seven five seven, but with guys like Daryl Tapp and, and bringing other, I I'd like to see us talk to a guy like uh, Lauren John five seven. Respect him a lot for what he's done in Richmond with the the what the Highland or not the, the Highland Springs, the yes, Highland absolutely. Springs guys, yeah, and I mean we're talking about four straight net, or four straight state titles, and I level. believe they just had a guy that flipped from LSU to Clemson yeah. off of that roster. So LJ could definitely be a huge resource, and that's a guy that we've seen mentioned. Uh, you know, to bring on staff in a player development recruiting type role, but the word on you know the word out there is that he wants to be an on field coach. So we don't know where that leaves us. Certainly, a candidate maybe for the defensive back position. Potentially, we don't know what they're what is going on. We don't have enough information on those right. hires. Right but now. I do believe that if he's in a recruiting or player development role, we're not allowed to recruit any player from Highland Springs for two years. So yeah, you know, but, but honestly, it's still worth it because he's highly respected in Richmond. Honestly, how many how many guys have we pulled from Highland Springs in the last five years anyway? Right. I, I mean, Macho Harris, certainly. And that's not that's, the last five that's, years. That's 10 years ago. That's the right. biggest one. And, and then, you know, Coach Beamer is going to argue Cheryl. <laughs> is he, I think I heard him joke one time that she was the best recruit he ever signed from Highland Springs. I tell, I tell you what, I would agree with Coach Beamer. His wife is a lovely lady. But listen, we're not really recruiting that high school anyway. It doesn't seem like. Or that or maybe they're big league in us too. I don't know. But right now, LJ is a hot commodity, and he would be great for recruiting in the state of Virginia because coaches right. and players all over the state have so much respect for that guy and the way he's dominated as a high school football coach. 
Right, and there's a you know a, a misperception out there that he is located in the seven five seven, but he's actually an eight hundred four Richmond guy. But he is highly respected, like you said, across the state and even nationally. I mean, people know what he's done at Highland Springs. I mean, his record over the last four and five years is, is incredible. I think they've lost what three or four games total, and then I think they lost two this year for the first time in a long and time. four or five straight state yeah. titles. So you know, LJ is, could certainly be a valuable resource. Um, I think that you spoke about Fuente and the relationship there with the 757 and the coaching staff. I'm not sure that I put much of the blame for that on the coaching staff because I think Fuente is very much a guy that comes in, and I don't think he wants to play the games that maybe you have to play there. And I know people are going to argue, well, you got to play them to get the players. But I think he's very much a guy that either you want to be a Hokie or you don't. And you, you, you're going to buy what we're selling, you like what we're selling, you like what we're about, or you, or you don't. And if you gravitate to that used car salesman personality, maybe our program is not the place for you to play. And I know that's harsh, and I know that's not popular, but there are programs out there that, that win doing it that way. Well, that's the thing. Virginia Tech's never been a five-star program as far as recruiting goes. We've, we've made our metal recruiting guys that we could evaluate and knew could play different positions and things of that nature. I mean, Cam Chancellor was a two-star quarterback right. coming out of high school. Right. One of the best safeties to ever play in college football and a very high-level safety in the NFL. Won a Super Bowl and went to a few Pro Bowls. And was right. Like, I mean, the leader of the guy. Legion of Boom. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole reason they were called the Legion of Boom. The guy could play. And we're not and we're not talking about a school that historically crushes with four and five star recruits. The, we're made on tough guys, on guys that want to play football, on guys that wanted to learn to be great that weren't great yet. And I think I saw a stat that you know today over Fuente's tenure that we've signed twenty four star recruits to date, and you know that's an average of his four years there of, of five per year. Um, but I, I think there's definitely potential there for more. But even you know if you could sign five or six, five to seven, eight four stars and occasionally a five star every year. I mean, that that's makes for a pretty solid roster, especially when you have a coaching staff that can coach guys up. And, and we certainly have had that and do have that. And that's why I think that these last few hires are pivotal for the program from a recruiting and a development standpoint. And that goes without saying, I mean, that's, that's just stating the obvious. 100%. I look forward to seeing Virginia Tech grow and, and kind of multiply on those things. The more four-star and five-star recruits you can sign, obviously, the better off you are. But I want to see us get back to some of that that tough mentality, that old-school lunch pail thing. Man, I want more of those guys. And I'm not saying Fuente and his guys haven't been recruiting those. We just haven't seen as much of it on the field recently. And I think this last year really was a huge step forward. Right. In that. I, I think we saw some – you know, we, we've talked about the defensive tackles. I think they certainly fit that mold, under-recruited guys that are – just utilize their strengths and their skill set and just get after it. And even though Dax was a four-star recruit and an All-American, Dax is not, you know, just going to go to an NFL combine and, and wow people with his athleticism. He's he's very much a blue-collar star, if there is such a thing. He, he is as good as he is because he relies on his football IQ, his instincts, his toughness, and his passion. It's not like that he's going to go out and run a 4-3-40 and that he's 6'5", 250, you know, looks like Ray Lewis. He, he, he is very much a blue-collar star, if that makes sense. He's a football player, man, and that's what it comes down to. Some guys don't have all the measurables. Some guys don't have a crazy good 40 or a crazy vertical. It's not to say that Dax is a bad athlete. That's not what I'm saying at all. He's just more in the vein of a football player at linebacker than he is a dominant athlete. He's not an Xavier Adibi. 
he's more in the lines of like a Jack Tyler. Even a Vince Hall. Vince Hall was not a freak athlete, but he was a, a freak football player. Absolutely. Just, like Rayshard Ashby, man. And Ashby's not a, a freak athlete as far as measurables go, but the dude is everywhere and he plays great football all the time. I mean, those are the types of guys you need in the in this program, and they're not highly touted throughout, throughout everywhere. But those, those are the guys that make Virginia Tech. Sure. And speaking of a guy that does have the measurables and will wow people at the NFL Combine when he so chooses to, to enter the draft, Virginia Tech got great news this week that uh, you know cornerback Caleb Farley is going to return for the 2020 season and not throw his name into the NFL draft. Uh, I saw an article in the paper today. I thought it was spot on that you know his return marks potentially the return of DBU. And that we went from starting the year with maybe two liabilities or unknowns at corner in Farley and Waller to having two of the best in the country coming back next year. And it's something we've spoken about plenty of times on this podcast, their development. But, I mean, that's huge news for the defense. We saw how much Caleb Farley means to that defense in Charlottesville. Oh, it goes without saying, man. Caleb Farley is one of the best corners in the country right now. Uh, And coming back next year, him and Waller make up one of the best duos of cornerbacks in the country. Arguably the best in the ACC. Uh, statistically, this year it'd be hard to argue against that, if you ask me. And then you have the stats there for a lot of proof. Man, those those two made huge strides this year. And you know, kudos to outgoing coach Brian Mitchell. I actually got a chance to talk to him uh, this past week in person. I was speaking to him and his son. You know, I told him, man, you did one heck of a job with the cornerbacks this year. Uh, and nobody could say any less. I mean, I know he's going on to do different things. I know he'll probably keep coaching somewhere. Absolutely. He caught a lot of flack for some of his recruiting. But I tell you what, man, X's and O's, that guy knows his stuff and really got a lot out of those two guys. And he coaches rear end off. And, um, you know, he, he did take some flack from the fan base for his recruiting. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of people were surprised last year when they saw Lincoln Riley, you know, making a run at Brian Mitchell to come be the cornerbacks coach at Oklahoma. But what those people weren't looking at, Lincoln Riley needed a guy that could coach defense, not a recruiter. He's got plenty of those. He's had a program that recruits itself, a blue blood. He can get Brian Mitchell the pieces. He needs Brian Mitchell to coach those guys up. So Brian Mitchell can fit in anywhere as a cornerbacks coach in, in the country. That guy has proven his worth over he the last coach at any level. few years. His, his recruit, he, if he goes to a place where he doesn't need to focus as much on recruiting, where they don't depend on him for recruiting, now Virginia Tech is a place where everybody has to recruit well. It's right. a different. Mitchell's going to be just fine because he is a great X's and O's guy. He, he knows his stuff when it comes to football. Right. Don't, and nobody should ever question that. No, I mean, we make no mistake about it. The two outgoing coaches on defense, not named Bud Foster, both can coach football and, and will have jobs just like that as soon as they're ready to have them. And it may already. Uh, you know, like you said, Zon Burden was not retained. You spoke about that on, the pod, on our last episode of the podcast. That's also something – that when, when we said that it was likely he wouldn't return, we knew, we, you know, we knew he wasn't coming back. Uh, we, we had already heard, but it's so, again, we're not going to break the news before the news is broken. But Zahn certainly, you know, he, he did a lot of positive things for Virginia Tech and he was well liked by the players. I'm, I'm of the agreement with you that it was time to move on uh, for, for him and for the program. Uh, but he's certainly a guy that'll land on his feet and, and, and bring a lot of value to, an, to a program whichever program ends up with them. Absolutely. And we're rooting for those guys, regardless of how things turn out here, because they did have some good years at Virginia Tech, regardless of what anybody has to say about them. Oh, absolutely. So look into the future. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech has a huge belt bowl matchup. And I say huge um, because, you know, a ninth win for, for this young of a team 
would would be a really good thing and a great way to get the sour taste of what happened in Charlottesville on Black Friday out of our mouth and end the season on a positive note going into 2020, in which if we win this game, I really expect Virginia Tech with what they have coming back and what they're bringing in, uh, as long as the transfer portal is kind to us this year and some guys don't start looking for greener pastures that maybe don't exist. I, I really expect us to be a top 15 team you know, coming out in the preseason rankings and the the overwhelming favorite to win the Coastal. I, I know North Carolina with Sam Howell is definitely going to be dangerous and, and what they what they signed in recruiting. But make no mistake, I expect us to be the, the heavy favorite to win the Coastal next year and play Clemson and Charlotte. Uh, so, you know, we have a matchup here with the Kentucky Wildcats out of the SEC, out of the East. Uh, they, they finished three and five in the SEC. Uh, seven and five overall, but did, you know, really Coach Stoops did a tremendous job getting Kentucky to a bowl game. They lost their top two quarterbacks. They have to move, uh, you know, receiver kick returner Lynn Bowden to quarterback, um, really remake that offense in the middle of the year and, and you know, what some would tell you. And, and and I'm not saying that it's not, you know, the best league in the country. So really what they've done is impressive, and they're certainly a dangerous team uh, in, in the regard of running the football. Absolutely. You know, anybody that plays in the SEC can be dangerous, and that's just the fact of the matter. You know, Kentucky and their their defense has really ramped it up the last half of the season. They, they statistically really come out of nowhere. It's kind of been crazy. But, you know, Lynn Bowden Jr. coming in is not much of a conventional quarterback, and you can see it in the passing statistics. I think he's around 50% as far as completion, maybe just below completion percentage. He's only thrown for like 300 and some odd yards, a couple touchdowns, a couple interceptions. He's not a guy that's going to blow you up throwing the ball. But when you look at his rushing statistics, it makes all the difference in the world. The guy had 151 attempts this year, averaged eight yards a carry, rushed for over 1,200 yards and 11 touchdowns. So he's definitely somebody, especially coming off a game against Bryce Perkins, who gashed us running the ball, that you have to be ready for because this kid is a, a ball player, straight up. He's a dude, and that that's something you have to be – ready to keep in check. Right. Well, I mean, when you think about being a receiver in the SEC and an NFL caliber receiver on top of that, you know, he's already declared for the NFL draft and then moving to quarterback in the middle of your team season and being productive in the SEC as, you know, a quarterback, two different positions, you've been able to make an impact on your team. And that just speaks to what kind of a freak athlete and crazy good football player Bowden Jr. is. Um, I think I saw a statistic. He overall was the third leading rusher in the SEC from the quarterback position. And I'm sure he had a, some yards, you know, running as a receiver, some jet sweeps and different ways they got him the ball early on in the season. But most of his damage on the ground was done from the quarterback position, very much a la of a high school football team. You know, basically, let's get the ball in our best athlete's hands and let him make plays. That, that's kind of what Kentucky's running. And Mark Stoops has done a tremendous job. And he, he's a tremendous football coach. Also on offense, they have Asim Rose, who's carried the ball 139 times for 757 yards and six touchdowns. Bowden Jr. has 11 on the ground, but Rose is averaging 5.4 yards per carry, and 6'1", is a pretty physical back you know, out of Cleveland, Ohio, that can certainly cause some problems if, you, if he gets to the second level. Oh, yeah, and then they've got a guy like Kavosi Smoke, the third leading rusher, who's got 600 yards and two touchdowns and was – a, as far as a, from scrimmage, has six touchdowns total and was closer to 700 total yards, man, on 100 touches. They've got some weapons, man. It's, it's SEC football. There's going to be speed all over the place. You know, they've got some strong defensive players, too. Uh, their leading tacker, tackler is DeAndre Square. 
Uh, he's got a, one interception, one forced fumble in the year, but he's got 68 total tackles and one and a half sacks. So he's kind of well-versed in a defense that is very spread out as far as who is efficient and who isn't. Right, and, and this is kind of a wild statistic, not really relevant to the game, although it could be in, in the trick play you know, category. Bowden Jr. is actually Kentucky's leading receiver with 30 catches for 348 yards, only one touchdown because he didn't see, you know, a, a lot of time at receiver um, halfway through the year. But for a guy to be your leading rusher and your leading receiver playing quarterback is just an oddity in itself and speaks to the kind of athleticism that we've already talked about that Bowden Jr. has. Uh, defensively, K- Kentucky is pretty solid. You know, um, Mark Stoops is a defensive guy, and he's tried to build that defense in the mold of your typical SEC defense. Big, long, athletic side to side. You're not going to beat them on the perimeter. Uh, they're going to try to keep you from beating them on the outside. But certainly, I, I feel like, you know, we're the favorite in the game, and, and we are favored to win. Uh, I think we have the better team, and I think this matchup bodes well for us in the fact that Bowden Jr. is not a tremendous passer. Um, you know, I, I I don't know that I'd classify Bryce Perkins as a an elite passer. Certainly has shown this year, especially the last few games against Virginia Tech and even Clemson, a pretty good passer. Bowden Jr. is nowhere near in, in the same category as a, as a Perkins, as a passer. So it's a game where Virginia Tech can really stack the box, load the box with eight, and dare Kentucky to throw it. And, and you know they're not. And as long as you can keep Bowden at the line of scrimmage, uh, you know, and keep him out of that second and third level. Really, it's an offense that, that can be contained and, and is conducive to Virginia Tech shutting the run down. 100%. You know, I think the defense matches up well with Kentucky. I don't think they have anybody that's going to blow us out of the water. You know, compared to Lynn Bowden Jr., Bryce Perkins he is an elite passer, I feel like. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And, and listen, we're not trying to slight Perkins in that. When we're, when we're talking about elite passer, we're talking to Joe Burrow, uh, a Trevor Lawrence. Certainly Perkins is in that next tier of college quarterbacks. Oh, 100%. Uh, it'll be really exciting to see what uh, Bud Foster schemes up in his last game as Virginia Tech's defensive coordinator because he always gets creative uh, when he's approached with a good challenge like this. Uh, Lynn Bowden Jr. creates an interesting challenge. We all know Bud has not always been super successful with mobile quarterbacks, but I don't think he's going to leave anything on the shelf for this game. He he's not. And Bowden uh, is maybe a little bit of a different different kind of quarterback than we've seen in the mobile variety. And that you know a lot of those mobile quarterbacks we've seen in the past, as we spoke about, can are, are effective passers. And you know by no fault of his own, I mean Bowden didn't expect to be playing quarterback in any game this year, much less the bowl game. Uh, he, he won the Paul Horning Award, which goes to the nation's most versatile player. So it's a guy that can beat you in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure that his arm is one of them. And he very may very well come out and use this prep time to become a better passer. But I can't imagine that a guy preparing to go to the NFL draft as a wide receiver is going to, you know, really come out and just prepare like gangbusters to, to be a quarterback in, in three or four weeks when it's not ever going to be, you know, applicable to his career again. It'll be interesting to see what his career becomes later on because I do think he is an explosive athlete as far as receiver goes and a quarterback, but he's obviously more well-suited with the ball in his hands, not throwing it. Uh, I do think that Virginia Tech matches up well offensively, man. I feel like we've got a lot of playmakers. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun to see what Fuente and Cornelson come up with and what Derek Hill kind of allows them to scheme up because this Kentucky defense is going to be athletic. They always are. They typically have a pretty good pass rush. But Virginia Tech's offensive line has been 
continuously improving this year. It's been a lot of fun to watch. And even more than that, man, the receiving the receiving group has just really taken off in a lot of ways. I know the stats aren't always there, but it's because you've got seven guys that can catch the football and take it the distance and, and do well with it right now. And I'm not saying we're, they're all elite-level playmakers, but you've got guys like Damon Hazleton. You've got guys like Trey Turner, guys like Tavion Robinson, and you have Dalton Keene and James Mitchell. You know, and then you have Hezekiah Grimsley coming off the bench. I mean, there are a lot of guys who can make a lot of plays for this football team. Right. Uh, Kentucky is a team that is turnover-prone. Uh, they've fumbled the ball 21 times this season and lost 11, so that could certainly come into play. Without a doubt. Uh, it's one of those things that I expect to not be a problem for Virginia Tech is forcing turnovers in this game because the defense has really taken significant strides this year in forcing turnovers and winning the turnover battle since the beginning of the year. Uh, you know, it's, but you go back to the Boston College game, we were minus five and, and lost that game. But really, since then, or since the first couple of games, really when Hendon Hooker took, a, took over, the defense really started making plays like against Miami, and really the offense stopped turning the ball over. So – I don't know. It just behooves success all around for Virginia Tech to be able to do that. Right. And, and regardless of the opponent, and like as we mentioned, Kentucky is a formidable opponent. Certainly we can't take them lightly. Um, you know, them and Tennessee both kind of trending upward there in the east, you know, finishing strong. If Had Kentucky been able to keep one of their two quarterbacks upright for the whole season, you know, they may be a nine or ten win team here. The odds of that are not, you know, really strong, but certainly better than they were converting a receiver. It's a matchup that does bode well for Virginia Tech pretty much in every phase. Um, they have struggled on special teams immensely, you know, because Bowden Jr. was their kick returner as well. And it's hard to play your last really healthy option at quarterback on special teams as a kick returner. So so that's certainly an aspect I expect us to take advantage of. Oh, 100%, man. Oscar Bradburn could have a huge day punting the ball. I don't expect him to have to punt that many times. But, man, his net average could be huge. It's a team that doesn't have very many great options on special teams to return the ball, aside from Bowden Jr. And, you know, conversely, Tavian Robinson has really come on the last few games as a punt returner, man. He's just one one step away, it seems like, a few times from taking one to the house back there. That kid is lightning in a bottle. You know, I know there were some comments made earlier on about his 4-8 times 40, but that's just bogus. That kid can scoot, and he he's great with the ball in his hands. Uh, he's he's absolutely electric. Uh, you go back to Wake Forest game and, and the efficiency and how many yards he had for how many touches is almost unlike anything we've really seen uh, on the offensive side of the ball and from special teams in a long time. Oh, 100%. It's an exciting time for, for every special teams, man. We finally got some guys in position to uh, make some plays for us. And I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how he continues to grow and transform as a football player. And, you know, it's it's great because he's a freshman. And, you know, he did burn his redshirt this year, but very successfully. So I know they talked about it early in the year that he could come out and take the starting job from Hezekiah Grimsley, and everybody kind of scoffed at that. But this kid has been elite uh, most of the year as far as what he's been able to accomplish, especially late in the year with the punt returning stuff. Right. And Kentucky's kicking game, you know, from, from a place kicker standpoint – has been a liability all season. I mean, they've missed three extra points combined, uh, you know, with Chance Poor and Matt Ruffolo sharing the kicking duties, and they're only eight of 13 on field goals. That's, you know, 61.5%. And it doesn't 
they've made uh, Rafolo has made one from fifty plus, but they've struggled, you know, from forty to forty nine, and even really, you know, the twenty to twenty nine, thirty to thirty nine range has not been automatic for either one of those guys. Not at all, and you know, for all the fun that Brian Johnson has caught most of the year, uh, he's done a pretty solid job of, of making the kicks he's supposed to make. I know he struggled for a little bit there leading up to the North Carolina game and in the North Carolina game. But since then, man, he's done a really good job of, of hitting field goals when he was supposed to. Yeah, I've been very pleased with the progress that the special teams, you know, that they've made throughout the year. Uh, Bradburn goes without saying how good he's been. Johnson has steadily improved. I mean, he, he's become a weapon and hit some big kicks in, in games where we've needed to keep the momentum going and, and done his job, really. 100%, man. You can't say enough about Bradburn either, man. He, he really did get snubbed for the Ray Guy Award this year, at least being in the top three. I feel like that was kind of ridiculous. But, you know, that's my, that's my opinion and maybe the opinion of a lot of other people. But anyways, you know, I, I expect this game to go in Virginia Tech's favor. Uh, I would kind of predict this, the score to be maybe not lopsided, but definitely a, a Virginia Tech win with without much sweating towards the end of it. I would say maybe like a, a 34 to, to 20 win, a 34 to 21, something like that. Right. I, I, I was going to say 38-17. But I can certainly see 38-20, 42-24. Uh, I don't expect them to be able to slow our offense down a whole lot. I think we match up well. I think you're going to see us put a complete game together on the offensive side of the ball. And I think you're going to see us throw in some wrinkles here in this prep time <clears throat> leading up to the bowl game uh, with some guys and maybe see some some things we didn't see during the regular season now that we have some some, I won't say downtime, but more time to put some things in. Oh, yeah. That extra month of prep for the bowl, to, the bowl game, that extra month of practice is huge, <laughs> especially for those young guys, man. What I think it's, what, 16 extra practices, 20 extra practices, something like 20. that? 20. 20 uh, extra practices. That makes all the difference in the world. And, and it's, it's huge going forward for next year. But something we haven't talked about, you know, and I, I won't say it's a con, but something that certainly come into play, you know, Charlie Wiles on burden. We're not coaching. Uh, Brian Mitchell are not coaching in the bowl game. So, will do you anticipate, uh, you know, having interim coaches and new coaches in those positions having an impact on the game? Potentially, and you might see some different wrinkles and stuff like that. But I'm not super worried about the the level of performance of, of who's going to be in there. I hate that Coach Wiles is not coaching this last game. Uh, you know that it, it seems like a little bit of a snub in a way, but, you know. Well, it was his choice, but I, I don't think from his perspective, I mean, how could he? He's got to go on job interviews and looking for his next move. So, you know, he really can't be locked in a room game plan and, you know, how to stop Lynn Bowden Jr. He, he's looking for his next job. I get it. I do. It just, I hate to see him go out. Sure, he deserved to have a, a, a farewell for, from Hokie Nation. He deserved absolutely. Yeah, he definitely deserved that. And, you know, I, I, I do wish him well. I don't think that the coaching changes will make significant differences in how Tech performs in this game. If it were a bigger game of a bigger magnitude, there might be a problem. But I think Virginia Tech is well equipped to handle Kentucky and that coaching staff. Right. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, obviously, uh, I don't think Tap and Clay's are involved. You know, with, with, with the preparation. Um, I, I, we know Adam Lechtenberg is the interim running backs coach. We'll see if that if that sticks long term um, because we. Justin Fuente did announce that that the tenth assistant is going to be moved to the defensive side of the ball. So, Lechtem, does Lechtenberg's role change? Does he go back to an administrative role after the bowl game? Those are all questions. You know, we're going to find out. I would assume after the bowl game, uh, pretty pretty quickly. Oh yeah, the 
the new year will tell us a lot of things early on. And, you know, we've got another signing day coming up in a few months after that. It's going to be a lot of fun to see how things progress from there. Hokie football is moving in a good direction. And, you know, next year, I hate to skip over the bowl game, next year could be something special if executed the way we expect it to be and we need it to be. Right. And, and I, I, that's why I think this bowl game, even though Kentucky 7-5 uh, is a game – that it's very pivotal for the program because, you know, nine and four looks a whole lot better than eight and five. Winning your last game looks a whole lot better than losing your last two, especially when one of them is to UVA. Uh, a young team going into the offseason feeling good about themselves, knowing what they have coming back, the recruiting momentum that we have, um, the, the new hires. I think it all just the, the, a win puts a nice bow on all of that going into 2020. Um, no, no pun intended there. A nice bow, um, you know, in, in recruiting there with Bo Davidson. But, um, it, it's certainly a, a very pivotal game, and I, it's one that, you know, being in Charlotte geographically, easy drive for most of Hokie Nation over the holidays, come spend New Year's Eve, you know, in, in Charlotte, a fun city. So I certainly wouldn't expect anything less but Hokie Nation to turn out in full force and really take over Bank of America Stadium, you know, uh, January 31st – or December 31st, excuse me. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, for a lot of those fans. I know you guys are going down – hanging out for New Year's in Charlotte, and it's going to be great. But, uh, you know, there are also a lot of other big games going on around that time. You know, the top four have been picked, and it's time for the showdowns that we've kind of been talking about for a while. You've got uh, LSU and Oklahoma, and you've got Clemson and Ohio State. And I tell you what, boy, those could be like, – at least one of those games could be an absolute show. Right. I mean, that I, – I, I think, you know – Oklahoma is kind of the under. I mean, not kind of. They are the underdog, and you know LSU's led by recently crowned Heisman Trophy winner Joe Burrow. But you know Oklahoma's dangerous. I mean, it's not a game where LSU can just go in and sleepwalk through and say, you know, no matter how we play, we're going to beat Oklahoma because Jalen Hurts. I feel like you know he doesn't really project this verbally, but I mean that guy's a competitor. He's got something to prove, and you know he's he's sitting here in the college football playoff again with a different team. Alabama's not in the playoff. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, the decision to leave two in the game cost two of the rest of his season and who knows how long of how much of 2020 and probably Alabama's chance at a national championship. But Jalen Hurts is sitting here, you know, with something to prove that he can lead another team to a national title, kind of stick it to Alabama. Hey, you're not even in the playoff and, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and win it. So don't discredit and, and discount the underdog factor because most of the time when a team's an underdog, that team's pretty good or they wouldn't be in that spot, especially in the playoff. You're a bit of a believer where I am not. I think um, – I don't I don't anticipate LSU to lose the game. Oh, I don't expect it to be close, Jonathan. Okay. I, I think LSU lights Oklahoma up like a Christmas tree. I, I think if that happens, I think it'll be because Oklahoma's defense can't hold up uh, against their offense. Oklahoma may score some points. They may sure. put up 20 or 30 points, but I also think they probably give up. And, and that very well may happen. I think Joe Burrow and his Heisman Trophy are going to come in and, and just light that defense up because they don't have any – and it's more than just Joe Burrow. Those receivers, man, there's there's NFL talent at every position on that offense. Those receivers and the tight end, I know Thaddeus Moss, man, those kids are unreal. I think two out of their four receivers run sub 4-3, 40s. They're in the 4-2s. Uh, they're all six-foot-plus. They're all 200 pounds-plus. They all have 38-plus-inch verticals. We're talking about elite level talent, guys that will dominate at the NFL level. And uh, 
you know, I just don't see anybody on Oklahoma's side of the ball that's going to do anything about that. And, and I can certainly see it going that way. I, mean, you know, I, I just think LSU's offense is going to execute well enough to make it a, a pretty dominating performance. And, you know, LSU's defense isn't anything bad than I have. Oh, absolutely not. No, I mean, that, you know, they're, they're high, highly touted guys now, on that side of the ball. On the other side of things, Clemson and Ohio State. Must-see must TV, man. That's gonna That might be your game of the year, depending on how things go with LSU and Oklahoma, man. I'm, I'm telling you, both of these teams are very good football teams. Ohio State's been getting a lot of the attention this year because they've just lit everybody up. Clemson is has caught some flack this far as strength of schedule goes, but you know, that's a that's one heck of a football team. And I don't know that anybody realizes it. That's kind of a sleeping giant at this point. I mean, hey, as big of a win as Wake Forest was for Virginia Tech this year, Clemson beat Wake Forest 52 to nothing. Yeah, I know they were missing two of their best receivers, whatever. Clemson dominated that game, and they would have dominated that game no matter who was playing on that side of the ball for Wake Forest, I feel like. That, that Clemson football team is nasty. That being said, Ohio State – has a lot of talent, man. You're talking about two different Heisman candidates in Justin Fields and Chase Young. These boys can play some football. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, you look at that quarterback matchup of Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, I mean, two of the top quarterback recruits in the country uh, uh, doing battle there. And then you look at Ryan Day and in a, in a brand-new head coach and Dabo, a guy that's won two national titles, two guys really at the top of their profession right now. I mean, there's a lot of games within a game. In that game, I oh, mean, yeah, a lot of matchups. And like Brent Venables being who he is and accomplishing what he's accomplished thus far, I tell you, man, for me personally, it's hard to pick against Dabo if he's playing anybody other than Nick Saban, right? And, and I even mean, against Nick Saban. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, Dabo Swinney and his guys really know how to get the job done when it's all on the line. And man, Trevor Lawrence hasn't lost a football game in how many years? Like six uh, since high school, right? I mean, he doesn't know what it's like to lose at the collegiate level. I mean, that that's incredible, really. I mean, so I, and he's and he's surrounded by talent too. The D Ford and those guys, man, those receivers can play. And hey, listen, Travis Etienne is quietly one of the best running backs in the country, point blank, no arguments. Uh, ACC Player of the Year, absolutely, I mean, and it wasn't close. And the in and a quiet ACC Player of the Year. Somebody talked about that. I think it was the College Game Day crew that he may be the most under the radar star in the history of college football. But it's certainly a contrast in styles to him. You look at Justin Fields, 2018 number one dual threat quarterback in the country, and Trevor Lawrence, number one pocket passing uh, pro style quarterback in the country in the same class. So, but you know Lawrence is sneaky athletic. He can make plays with his feet and extend a play if he has to. He just doesn't look to because you know he has elite arm talent. And Justin Fields, you know, makes plays with his feet, has great size at six three two twenty five, but he's not a he's a very capable passer as well. So, I, man, I'm looking forward to that game. I'm going to have <clears> – <throat> I'm going to be pulled up as close to the TV as I could possibly get, and I'm going to tell people to leave me alone for a few hours, and, and I'm going to – all eyes glued to the television on that. the doors to the apartment, to the house, whatever you're doing, you watch that game, and, man, you get ready for a show because – and that's a tough one to even pick. I don't know what the spread is currently, but I think Clemson's favored by maybe a point or two. So it's almost a pick at this point. And I absolutely think that Clemson's going to find a way to win. And I, you know, I, I know the coach does the coaching honestly because the talent level is going to be very comparable. I think it comes down to what Dabo Sweeney and Brent Venables and his guys are able to achieve against Ryan Day and his guys. Right, and I certainly and fully believe that the winner of this game can beat LSU and win the national championship. I 100% believe that that it is 
possibility. Now, LSU for me is the favorite, but I'll tell you what, the LSU Ohio State or LSU Clemson matchup would be one heck of a game as well. I'm, I would take Clemson in this one maybe by a field goal. I don't. I wouldn't venture to guess how many points might be scored because it's hard to say which which strategy either of those teams take. If they want to try to outscore each other or they want to try to make it physical and get nasty with it, they can play both ways. I'm telling you this much, man. Whoever wins this game is, has got to like their chances after winning such a big game going into an LSU match. you got to think that both, both the Clemson and Ohio State staff and, and Oklahoma and LSU, but certainly in the Ohio State-Clemson game, both of those staffs are not getting a lot of sleep right now. Ooh, no. One, because probably what you're seeing on film is keeping you up at night. Like, I mean, if you're – if you're the defensive coordinator at, at Ohio State, how do you watch that Clemson offense and, and get any sound sleep whatsoever? Nobody's got to feel, nobody can feel good about that. And, if, and conversely, man, how do you watch that Ohio State offense? Uh, Justin Fields well, and Justin J.K. Dobbins. And J.K. Dobbins. Absolutely. And, boys, and I tell you this much, I don't know who the starting tackles for Clemson are. I can't name them off the top of my head. But I know at least one of them, if not both of them, and if they're not, they should be having nightmares. Chase Chase Young. And that I mean, and also I mean, how are you getting any sleep? Because I mean, you're you're you've got to be game planning and scheming for every possible oh, yeah. scenario. Like you said, I mean, just everything cha- goes out the window now. If you're an offensive line coach and an offensive coordinator, it's going to take a week to try to figure out how to how to shut Chase Young down. Oh yeah, and nobody's done it successfully so far. And if you double team him, I mean, they've got enough talent at D line. You can't just let some guy from Ohio State's defensive line roam, roam free and get a bunch of hits on Trevor Lawrence because that's really something that Trevor Lawrence has not faced in the last couple of years as, as a college starter. He hasn't taken a lot of punishment. I fully expect if he takes a few hits, he'll be fine, and he's going to hang in the pocket because he's a competitor and an elite quarterback. But, I mean, any I don't care who you are, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, or, you know, the quarterback from the movie The Little Giants, <laughs> you take enough you take enough hits, you're not going to – eventually you're not going to come back. So – You've got to protect Trevor Lawrence at all costs from his defensive line. I agree. Um, like I said, I would pick Clemson maybe 31-28, uh, 27-24, something like that. I don't think it's out the roof as far as scoring goes. I think these teams try to keep it under 30 apiece. Uh, honestly, it, it's hard to say, though, because, like I said, these guys can play either way. Uh, <coughs> what's your pick on this, Jonathan? Uh, I, I'm like you. I, I think I, I could see Clemson – Maybe at the end getting a touchdown and pushing it to 10, but I expect it to be within three points either way. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if Ohio State won the game, but I, I also kind of would be shocked to, to not see Clemson win the game just because we haven't seen Clemson lose in so long. We've forgotten what it looks like. But I, I think it sets up an intriguing matchup regardless for the national championship game, provided LSU does do what we think and win, especially if they're playing Clemson because it's going to be the first time all season that Joe Burrow is probably regarded as the second most talented quarterback on the field because what quarterback is more talented than Trevor Lawrence on paper? I I, I don't see that guy. You know the NFL draft was tomorrow and they're both eligible. There's not a GM in the country in the NFL that's taking Joe Burrow over Trevor Lawrence. I agree. You know Trevor Lawrence is lauded as the the next Peyton Manning type of guy. He's been that premier quarterback for his whole life. And he doesn't lose football games, so it's hard to pick against him. And it's hard to say that anybody would be picked over him. You know, there's a lot of football. Going to be a lot of fun to watch, man. Uh, a lot of really good bowl games. Uh, you know, the Alabama Michigan game, and everybody's excited about that. But I really don't see that being I much. Hate, I would hate to be Michigan in that game. 
I don't really see that being much of a matchup. Uh, I, I don't think Michigan can match up athletically with Senior Alabama. Khaki pants is probably going to get his feelings hurt pretty bad in that one. Right, but there's a lot of really, really yeah, good I, matchups. Bowl season has always been one of my favorite times. It's oh, really yeah, bowl exciting. Bowl season kind of equates to March Madness for me, man. There's just so many good matchups. You know, honestly, the UVA Florida matchup could be a really good game because Florida is not a great offensive football. No, I honestly, as much as it probably pains me to say it, when I saw that announced, I. I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for UVA to, to if you want to call it an upset, and I, I guess you would have to, uh, to pull one here. I mean, I Bryce Perkins is going to be highly motivated because, and this is not a slight to the young man, probably his last game ever as a quarterback, at least as a starter, okay? And, and a nice way to put a bow on his career at UVA and the turnaround that he's oh, kind of huge. orchestrated. And, you know, Florida's defense is nasty. Todd Grantham can coach. Right. And those guys are great athletes. They're a lot faster than most of the defenses Perkins will have played this year. But, man, if he shows up and makes a few good plays, just think back to the Miami game and how much Florida struggled with a pass rush. And I know it's a, it's a different defensive line. UVA has a good pass rush. Absolutely. They're, they're uh, Miami may be quicker up front on their pass rush, but I would argue that UVA is much stronger. And, and has a lot better size. I mean, and those guys really – I mean, again, as much as we don't like to say it, and any credit we give UVA, we're probably going to preface that, and that's going to be a precursor to our statement. But as much as we don't like to say it, really in Charlottesville at the end of the game, their defensive line took the game over. That That's that – they, they yeah, put in the, the – end, that's what guys. In the end, that is what right. guys. So I wouldn't be surprised if UVA is able to pull off that upset if you can call it an upset. And, and I'm not sure that, you know, if that happens, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to hate that because – we, we talk about all the time how much we get tired of hearing about the SEC. And, you know, we know that with UVA it's not going to be sustained. They're not they're not going to win at that level for uh, any length of time. But, I mean, Bryce Perkins leaving is a huge blow to them. That's a, that's right. a generational talent for UVA. And I saw somebody, I think it was two weeks ago, say that Armstrong had potential to be better than Perkins. I mean, I, I think anybody that says that would have to be living in a fantasy land. I mean – Very hopeful statement. Right. I – <clears throat> I, I, the game that he got hurt, but Perkins got, I think it was Louisville. And I know it's not the same as preparing to be the starter and getting thrown in, but Armstrong kind of looked lost. And again, how many quarterbacks could we say that about that they've been thrown in as a backup as a young kid and they come in later as the starter and, and they light it up? You know, there's numerous stories of that, but Armstrong just doesn't really have the look to me of, of, of a Perkins. You can, you can tell by Perk from, you can watch him play one play and tell. That guy's a dude. Armstrong just doesn't give that off. No, I agree. Uh, and I don't think UVA sustains this level of success. I think they are in an upward trend. Absolutely. Be better, and I think the, Where else could they have gone? Well, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like you will see them continue to do well in football as far as what their standards have been. Sure. I, mean, I think they're raising the bar for themselves. Right. I, I don't good. I don't think them I don't think we're gonna see, you know, four or five, six years in a row of them not making bowl games. No, and I don't think I also don't think we're going to see anywhere near that amount of time that Virginia Tech doesn't win the Commonwealth Cup. But, you know, that's, that's just me saying that. Yeah, and we're not going to get off on this. We've discussed this that's ad nauseum. That, that certainly is not the standard of Virginia Tech's program and not what they're looking to do. It's all we got to get good enough to beat UVA again. That's that's We're not there. Got to be a blip on the radar on the way to something bigger like it once was. Sorry, we're talking about a team that could win 10-plus games. Honestly, I'd be disappointed if we we didn't do any better than that. But, uh, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's plenty of football left this year. 
Absolutely. Bowl season, you know, kicks off tomorrow. I'm excited. I'm probably one of the the odd people that tries to watch as many bowl games as I can. I don't really care who's in it, what the bowl is. Uh, you know, tomorrow at two o'clock, I'll probably be probably be in front of the TV watching the Bahamas Bowl. Uh, you know, Buffalo and Charlotte, you know, the 49ers I, I, in one of their, you know, first few seasons here in the FBS get to a bowl game. Uh, you know, that program is one to kind of keep an eye on there in Conference USA. Um, you know, that's a nice location that you can recruit to in a, in a very winnable conference. And I expect them, you know, kind of cer- certainly like ODU did a few years ago where they went 10 and 3 and uh, in Conference USA or out of Conference USA. I think Charlotte's a program that could, could make some noise in that group of five at some point. Without a doubt. You know, I don't know as much about uh, any Conference USA teams, and I'll be honest with you. But there are some bowl games that are certainly going to be worth watching this year. And then, uh, you know, to stay in state, you've got the Cure Bowl uh, with Liberty and Georgia Southern. That, that's on the 21st. Um, you know, a huge accomplishment for Hugh Freeze in his first year to get Liberty to a bowl game. Uh, you know, that program, again, the money they have and the resources that university they has. They're on the cusp, man. That, that's a team that could be a problem. They could be a problem for sure. Um, uh, Boise State and Washington. Man, what? The irony of that match. You could, somebody had to have done that on purpose. 100%. Uh, I mean, you got You're Chris. In, you kind of hope to see Chris Peterson go out on a high note against his team. I have my doubts, honestly, because Boise State is always tough. And they're, just, they're honestly just tough to deal with. Right. Well, just from a Virginia Tech fan perspective, you're pulling for Washington because Boise State's there at the bottom of the top 25 at 19. You know, if we if we win, certainly we're looking to finish the year in the top 25. Uh, you know, I, we we talked about last week or on the last podcast how much we respect Chris Peterson. So, you know, in the Las Vegas Bowl there, I kind of hope he gets the, the, the better of Boise State. And Boise is a program I've always pulled for, you know, sans the year that we played them in, in at FedEx. But, uh, you know, just the way they do it, and they're just kind of fun to watch and, and kind of fun to always pull for the underdog. Uh, then another program that, you know, is popular in our area, Appalachian State versus UAB. What Bill Clark does at UAB, I don't think people will appreciate. You know, they shut that program down a couple years ago, and then they come back and, and they're back, right back where they start. You know, right back where they left off in bowl games, eight nine win seasons. Just that's really impressive. And then you start to look at some of the bigger bowl games, the bigger bowl matchups. Um, you know, you have Iowa and Southern Cal in the Holiday Bowl. Uh, you know, Clay Helton very much is a guy that needs to finish strong and start strong. You know, USC opted to keep him as their head coach at the end of the season. Uh, you know, there was a report at one time they were breaking news that he wasn't being retained, and then USC came out and said that's not accurate. But certainly that's a bowl game between two programs that that that, that has the potential to be a really good matchup with an Iowa team and a USC team that are both kind of finishing strong here. Oh, yeah, Iowa's got a nasty defensive line. It's a unique thing. I don't know how they recruit those guys down there to Iowa, but playing against USC in a bowl like that, could be a very good opportunity for them to make some headlines. Well, it's very much a, a, a situation like we were talking about with Virginia Tech kind of in the past has had a lot of success recruiting their guys. Iowa recruits to their system. They know what they're looking for, and they coach those those guys up in a way that, that's productive for their program. Uh, then you look at a game I'm, I'm sure Coach Fuente will have all eyes on if he has the opportunity for more than one reason. You know, Penn State, you know, in the Cotton Bowl against Memphis, we go head-to-head with Penn State for a lot of recruits. And, you know, Justin Fuente – certainly gets the credit for today Memphis being in the position they're in because Mike Norville doesn't do what he did at Memphis if Justin Fuente doesn't lay that foundation and, and get that program started. Uh, you know, that's a game I would probably pick Memphis to win if they had their staff intact. 
they haven't, you know, he's not the interim coach anymore. He, he they removed that tag, but Memphis is dangerous in this game. I, I, I feel like Penn State is a little bit overrated. I, if anything else, Penn State is poorly coached. Uh, James Franklin is, in my, in my opinion, one of the worst, most loved head coaches in college football. The guy can recruit his butt off. He's a snake oil salesman, but he's a, he's not a good football coach from what I can see. I've, and I've never seen it. And it's not a knock on the guy personally. I don't have any personal beef with him. He just he makes very little sense to me as far as a quality head coach goes. There's no reason in the world that Memphis couldn't come in and, and shock up a little bit. I think Penn State is going to take Memphis a little lightly because it's Memphis. You know, they're they're not a team that anybody looks at very seriously. I mean, they beat Ole Miss a couple years ago. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, Ole Miss is a little bit uh, of a different variety than Penn State, but it's the same Ole Miss team that beat Alabama in the, in the same. So I mean, it's, it's just it, it's right. Take on. I understand. You know, it's yeah. completely different coaching staffs, and there's a lot of stuff that is different now especially losing their head coach. You know, Norvell is a, a heck of a guy as far as football coaches go. I think he'll do well at Florida State. Yeah. I mean, he's a much better head coach than uh, the previous situation there for Florida State, I feel like. But anyways, you know, I, I don't I don't know that Memphis will pull it off, but there's certainly a good potential for it. And I think the fact that they removed the interim tag um, will help because, you know, the coaching staff is going to be bought in. Most of those guys know they're coming back now. The players know who they're going to be playing for. They're not looking – to maybe transfer, they're not looking, you know, is this guy going to – the next coach going to want me? Everybody's still kind of bought in there, and they're just kind of keeping a good thing going. So, it's certainly a game I'll be pulling for Memphis to win. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you look at the Outback Bowl, you have number 12 Auburn and number 18 Minnesota. P.J. Fleck, they've had a great season. He's a nice story, really good head coach. I don't think they have anything for Auburn in this matchup. You look at what Auburn did to Alabama. I understand Alabama wasn't at full strength, but Alabama at – 85% strength is still better than Minnesota. And if Auburn comes in this game motivated and, and wanting to be there, I, I I expect this one to get ugly early. I, I think Auburn probably romps in that game. And it's just because of pure athletic ability. Sure. I mean, they just have they just have better Jimmys and Joes. Yeah, uh, and at, sometimes at that is the difference. Absolutely. Um, and then you'll get the Rose Bowl, Oregon and Wisconsin, you know, the familiar foes. It seems like we get this matchup every few years. Completely opposite ends of the spectrum in style and scheme. You have the power run game and Jonathan Taylor there with Wisconsin. You have Oregon and their flashy, you know, finesse offense. Uh, Herbert, you know, certainly is, is a, an elite quarterback and makes that offense go. Really, that's an intriguing matchup there in Pasadena in the Rose Bowl. It is. You know, I think Wisconsin bullies Oregon this year. I don't think Oregon has much in the way of being able to control that game because Jonathan Taylor and that Wisconsin run game are filthy. I don't understand. I still don't understand how Taylor was left out of the Heisman Trophy ceremony. I mean – well, I, you know, there weren't any real quality wins and the quality of opponents sure. that they beat. It, it's a tough sell. But when you look at who was in the, the Heisman running this year, there was just no real competition. You're talking about guys that had 5,000 yards of total offense, 40, 50 total touchdowns, the best defensive football player in college football, maybe in the last five, 10 years. Right. Uh, Probably since Indomitian Sioux. Yeah, the only one that, yeah, I mean, it's, we're, we're talking about some supreme level talent at that point. You know, I can see it. But he is one of the best running backs in the country, bar none. Right. Uh, and then you look in the Sugar Bowl, uh, you know, number five Georgia, a team that didn't even drop after losing LSU in the SEC title game, uh, versus number seven Baylor, a team that, you know, went to overtime with Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship, gave them all they wanted. Matt Rule has done a tremendous job. You think that program, you know, won one game a few years ago. And to look where they are now, uh, I'm not sure that Baylor has the athletes to match up with Georgia, 
but I would be surprised to see Baylor win. I, I, I would. Uh, I would be very surprised to see Baylor win. I think Georgia. You know, Georgia is going to be a little pissed off not making the, the top four, and I know they kind of got drilled by LSU, but LSU is a transcendent. They kind of I, I was worn down. Yeah, really, they was got, the they just kind of they got drummed over time. I think Georgia's going to come out and try to bully Baylor because Baylor is not a, a very you know you, they they play defense, but you know the big the Big Ten plays or the Big Twelve plays defense a little different than everybody else. I think Georgia has every capacity to bully Baylor around offensively. Yeah, I, I think, and, and I don't I don't think it's a stereotype. I think it's proven out to be this way. I agree with you. I think any Big Twelve opponent is going to go, especially at the the upper tier of the Big Twelve. Match up with an upper tier team from another conference, a major conference, power or power five conference. That's going to be the game plan. We're going to go in and try to bully them early on and see if we can. And yeah, if we can, we don't need to do anything else. Historically, they're just not very physical, especially in the last ten years. It's hey, we're going to light up the scoreboard and things like that. And you know, I know, like I said, I know Baylor has a, a pretty good defense, and they've shown flashes this year, especially against teams like Oklahoma. But man, Georgia just has athletes that are nasty. All over the field, and I just I don't. Uh, feel yeah, like what Baylor, Kirby Smart's done there is you know, really impressive. I don't feel impressive. like Baylor matches up well at any position. No, Matt Rule's done a great job of getting a lot and out of what Matt he Rule has. Deserves a lot of credit. You know, I think he'll be somebody that takes a, the, one of the next huge jobs. I know Baylor has a lot of funding and stuff like that, but I bet he'd be somebody that I could see going to like a like a big like a Texas job or a or a Florida job, like another a big-name school with a lot of backing and stuff like that. I feel like he's working his way towards that. I'm honestly surprised that we didn't see Florida State take a run at him. And, I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm kind of glad they didn't, to be honest. Sure. And I, I don't know what's going to happen with Manny Diaz. I, I, obviously, he's going to get another year or two. But I, I feel like Matt Rule would be a guy that could really do well with a program like Miami, where he has a lot of resources and, and can bring a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. And, and and utilize the talent that he's got because it would certainly be the most talent he's ever had on a roster if he were to land a, a job like that. Hands down, and you know I like Matt Rule. He's a good football coach. Absolutely, he seems like a good dude. I, I think he could do well just about anywhere. But it would be interesting to see him get a hold of a true A tier program. And then uh, you know a, a bowl game. It's you know not really a high profile matchup. It's certainly one program that has overachieved the last few years and one program that's hoping to get back to national prominence, but you have Tennessee and Indiana and, and it's notable because Tennessee, you know, is, is a regional rival and, and the fan bases like to, you know, have that rivalry there. And we've played a couple of times since 2009 in a bowl game and, you know, the battle at Bristol, uh, what Jeremy Pruitt has done, like it or not, that he's turned the season around here at the end after the rough start, you know, losing to BYU. You know, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a Tennessee fan by any means, but, you know, what he's done has been impressive. And I don't think much of Indiana, to be honest with you. I don't think Indiana is, is that good. I think Tennessee should have a pretty easy time with this. I mean, far be it for me to say anybody's bad. But, I mean, I would expect to see Tennessee kind of run away with this one. I I, I agree with that. I mean, you look at the start of the season, Tennessee loses to Georgia State in Neyland Stadium, which when we were growing up as kids, uh, you know, we would have thought that unthinkable. At the time, you know, with Philip Fulmer there, and you know they were winning national, winning a national championship. We would, if you'd have told us a program like Georgia State, who who is a solid program for what they are, coming into Neyland Stadium on a Saturday and beating Tennessee by more than a touchdown, would we, we would have laughed at you. And then they followed that up with a loss to BYU uh, in a game where they, I, th- I think they had like four. It was fourth and twenty one 
and they gave up a 40-some yard pass or something that set up a, a, a BYU field goal for the win. Uh, then they rebound, you know, in the season with wins over South Carolina, Kentucky, uh, Vanderbilt, who they had a losing streak to, which is uncommon, you know, in, in that rivalry's history. They beat Missouri. So really, uh, you know, finish five and three in the SEC East. If they can get to eight and five here, that's a nice building block for Jeremy Pruitt. At, at Tennessee and compared to what it could have been this year when people were talking about burning down Neyland Stadium, yeah, I mean, he's done some. I mean, there, there was stuff. talk that Jeremy Pruitt wasn't going to make it out of the season with his job. And Lord, I, I didn't think they would win six, I didn't think they'd be bowl eligible at the start. Of the I don't season. think many people did. And you know, you, you have that already the, the Phil Fulmer shadow there, the, the last coach to win a national title there. He's the athletic director now, but Jeremy Pruitt, you know, a Nick Saban guy, he's also coached at Georgia. Defensive coordinator at Alabama. Um, you know, I, a lot of people don't remember this show, but the two a day show on MTV. He was the defensive coordinator there at uh, Hoover High. A very intense guy, very much old school in your face, but it seems to be working at Tennessee. And they've had a lot of guys leave the program, probably for that very reason, because Pruitt brings a very intense in your face style that, you know, but it seems to be working there in Knoxville. And, as much as we don't like Tennessee, college football is better when Tennessee's good. Just because it—I it, it, won't say it's a blue blood, but it's—it's it's an iconic historic program. It's a program that a lot of people pay attention to. Sure, sure, and and it's fun when Virginia Tech is good and Tennessee's good because you you know you play the what if game. You know that they don't play each other; they're not a common opponent of each other. But there's always that rivalry between the fan base and a chance that they could match up in a bowl game, and hopefully down the line maybe a non-conference game. I would like to see a home-and-home for Certainly. Tennessee and Virginia Tech. That would be a lot of fun for a lot of people. It, it would be fun for their fans to, to come to Lane and, and experience that environment. And I think it would be equally as fun for us to travel to Neyland and, and see that that environment. I don't know if I ever want to hear Rocky Top that many times in a day, man. Uh, the 09 Chick-fil-A Bowl, I, I have to give them credit. I mean, no matter how much they're down, you're going to hear that song, even my mom. She was at the game with us, and I remember she the whole way home, that's all she talked about was like, I can't believe a team would be down four touchdowns and playing their fight song that many times that loudly when all their fans had exited early. But, you know, kind of put a bow on this thing like you and I have talked about. A lot of exciting stuff going on in college football here to, to end the season. A lot of great things, exciting stuff for Virginia Tech football specifically happening here. Really exciting t- time to be a part of Hokie Nation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we'll get right back into Hokie wrestling and Hokie basketball as, as the Christmas season kind of passes by and we get into the new year. There will be a lot of more exciting things to talk about all over Hokie Nation. But right now, college football is what's up and is what's happening. So we wanted to really get into the nitty-gritty of it. We, we missed a week in the podcast for scheduling conflicts. But, you know – we, we really wanted to dive in deep and, and talk some college football this week. Well, and we have the time, and there's a lot lot going on with the football program. We'll come back and, like you said, get back into basketball. Um, Mike Young's team did pick up two wins last week, Gardner-Webb and Chattanooga. They'll finish up with two non-conference games uh, here before we take on UVA to get back into ACC play. So really excited for Hokie sports going forward. Uh Really excited to be back with you before the national championship game and, and have another episode and kind of break down some more of the happenings and, and and how we finish out our coaching staff. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun, especially once we know the fin- the finality of some of these matchups. Thanks again for listening. Uh, we'll be excited to be back with you next week. I'm Jonathan Hagee. And I'm Austin Eads. And we're signing out from the Terror Dome.